other than that, I am looking forward to worshiping with you again tonight. And uh, Daniel, I guess you're going to lead us tonight. So come on up, sir, and you can open us up with prayer too. All right? Uh, before I pray, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. We'll go ahead and read through the whole song. <coughs> Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forgive none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and on his righteous and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for your word and for psalms like that that remind us that we need to be worshiping you. We need to be thanking you for what you've done for us. We need to be reminded constantly of what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in you, that you don't hold our sins against us, that you're merciful, that you're kind, and you're loving towards us. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Please help us throughout this whole service just to help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to honor you and to think about what we sing and to think about what your word says and not just to go through some kind of religious ritual. Please help us to keep our eyes focused on you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take your red books and stand, we'll turn turn over to song number 36 in your red books. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Song number 36.
Thank you. 
our final song, if you'd stand again, take your blue hymnals, turn over to hymn number 503. Hymn number 503, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Thou art, I am finding out the 
Father, please help us again. I ask again, help us to focus on your word. Help us to understand it. We need your help, Lord. It's your word, and we need guidance from you to understand it. So please help us to focus on it and help us to learn from it and to apply it to our lives. And please help my dad just to teach it clearly and accurately. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's James chapter 3. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank, uh, she's not here, but Caroline for uh, playing the piano this morning. And that was kind of her. Steven and Savannah should be back home on uh, Tuesday, I think, maybe Monday. Probably not, though, probably Tuesday, realistically. No one really knows. Uh, they'll be back, we hope. We're deviating from Daniel. need to explain that also. Tonight we're not in Daniel 5 like we normally would be. Next week we'll go to Daniel 5, hopefully. Um, but uh, there's three reasons why we're not in Daniel 5 tonight. Number one, a wedding that took us to Virginia. Uh, number two, an unexpected death of my aunt just passed this week. And number three, I was asked to do the funeral on Friday. Number four, Ryan and I have class tomorrow on a bunch of assignments due. <laughs> so I'm going back to James for a little while here, or tonight at least. And uh, let's read uh, James chapter 3. And the scripture says here, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? I want to make a couple observations before we get into the text. First of all, this passage concerning the tongue is applicable to everyone in this room and in this world and all believers, period. There's no one exempt from this, uh, this study. There's no one out there that can say, well, I've mastered the tongue and I'm, I'm okay, I don't need this. Everyone here, whether whatever your uh, level of maturity is in the faith, you still need, not me, you need this message right here from James chapter 3. All of us, are. this applies to all of us. Secondly, I want you to know the source of what we say that comes out of our mouth, the source of that is, is really our, our heart. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 12, we'll look at this quickly. And, and the Bible says this in many places. I just wanted to say this first. 
Matthew 12, 33 to 37. What you say reflects what's in your heart. You can tell people right away, by the way, the conversation they use, the words they use. It says in Matthew 12, 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what we say just simply reflects what's already in our heart. It comes out. And I want you to notice in James that James has already alluded to, to the tongue in, in earlier verses before chapter 3. Look at chapter 1, verse 19 of James. James 1.19, he says here, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He gives a warning there. Look, we need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. I remember one time at the, the, the church we were at, um, we had a guy that came in there. His name was Jack, I think. And I kept hearing Jack wants to, Jack's visiting our church. He wants to speak. He wants to say things. He wants to teach. He wants to be a Sunday school teacher or something like that. And uh, he, needs, he feels the desire to say things. I kept hearing this. So we had a meeting uh, on a Sunday evening. We had a meeting every Sunday evening for the men's, kind of a men's fellowship get-together. And this guy, Mike was in there, this guy started talking right away. Boys, I've seen a lot of things in my life, and I'm here to tell you how, how life is. He was going to instruct us on what it was to live through life. And he talked, and he talked, and he talked endlessly. And he said nothing. Finally, Mike says, Mike about us having a frame, our pastor, and he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. And, and the guy just shut up, and that was the end of that conversation. And, uh, and that's true. This is a problem here. Our problem is we're, we're quick to speak and slow to hear, right? And James says, No, I don't want it to be that way. I want it to be just the opposite. And then look at James chapter 1. If I say Daniel, it's because I've been thinking about Daniel a lot lately. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, another allusion to the tongue here. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And he says here, it's a, it's a, a problem to bridle our tongue. And true religion, a person who's true, who practices true religion before God, not the, not the religion of the world, is the one who will bridle his tongue or work on bridling his tongue at least. And so James talks about this before he gets to chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, and we'll start in that chapter now. And you'll notice, first of all, in the first two verses of chapter 3, we have a warning to teachers concerning their tongue. A warning to teachers concerning their tongue. He says in verses 1 and 2, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Notice he's speaking to the brethren, verse 1. Uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren. Verse 10, he says, uh, at the end of the chapter, uh, verse here, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And in verse 12, uh, he says, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? So he's talking to believers, I, I believe, that's what he means by this, this word, my brethren, here. And he says, let not many of you become teachers, or stop becoming many teachers. Not many of you should presume to become teachers. Uh, and, and he gives us a warning here. Why is he saying this? 
because he's stressing the serious nature of teaching. When you teach God's Word to anybody, whether it's in a setting like this, or whether it's in at your house, to your family, or wherever it is, it's a very, a very serious matter to teach the Word of God, especially in a church setting. And uh, James Hebert says this, he says, uh, teachers here is not restricted to officially appointed teachers, but includes all those who arise to instruct their fellow members. And this concerned the doctrinal and moral teaching of, of, of its members. And so, those who would enter the ministry of teaching the Word of God must do so with caution. They're cautioned and warned against entering quickly. He's not trying to discourage people who are rightly suited to the job. That's not what he's doing. But he's saying, look, I want to give you a warning. Not many people should go into this business of teaching and preaching the Word of God in, in, a, in a way that's, that's public or in a way that's a, a, a lifetime ministry. Now, why does he say that? Because it's a very serious matter to teach and preach the Word of God. Does that mean those of us who do this kind of thing think that we're better than everybody else? I guarantee you we don't think that at all. It's a very... Uh, you know how often I think I shouldn't do this? Every day of my life. Mike, what do you think? He thinks the same thing. Uh, this is not something to be taken lightly. And so, who should teach? Well, not the majority. He says, not, not many of you should become teachers, my brethren. This is not for the majority to be doing this kind of thing. And I'm saying this based on this verse right here. Secondly, not those who have wrong motives. I'm just giving some thoughts here. Not those who have wrong motives. For example, if a person is filled with pride and he wants to get up here and say something from the, from the, from the pulpit or from a podium because, or a Sunday school class, because he is filled with pride and he wants to get his opinions across, that's not going to fly. Not with God, it's not. This is not a place to air our opinions right here. There's only one thing we're to do in this pulpit, and that is what? To preach the Word of God, right? There's nothing else to do. And so those who have an opinion they want to air, that's not for them to get up and do it. Who else should not teach? New converts. It says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, an overseer must not be a, a new convert. Why? Because he hasn't been taught. He hasn't matured in the faith. And so, you know, so, so often a, a guy will get saved as a famous athlete or entertainer, and uh, the next thing you know, they've got him up on the stage talking to people. shouldn't be there. He should have time to grow and mature in the faith before he gets there. Who else should not teach? Those without the gift of teaching. The Bible talks about the gift of teaching in 1 Timothy 3 and other passages. And, if, uh, you know, you don't choose to have the gift of teaching. Uh, you don't choose to have any other gift. God is the one who dispenses the gifts to people. And if he gave you a certain gift and exercise that gift, whether it's teaching or whether it's serving or something else, exercise the gift he gave you. It's not up to us to decide, I think I want to do this. Because if I had my choice, I'd pick something else, I guarantee you. But God is the one who dispenses the gifts and says, this is what you're to do. Who else should not teach? Those who are careless. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we should be diligent to uh, study, to show ourselves approved unto God, right? Workmen that don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, or correctly handling the word of truth. It's a, you have to handle the word of truth in a correct manner, and not in a careless manner. And so those who are careless with the scriptures, they should not do this. How often have I been in a church setting, and, and they needed a Sunday school teacher somewhere in some class, and they said, grab Joe over there, he's available. Or Mary, we think she might be able to do it. Without any thought at all of whether this person could even teach. I think we've, we've talked about this also, where people have been put in places of teaching that were either not even saved or taught false doctrine. That's ridiculous. They weren't even checked out at all. And so those who are careless with the word, those who are ignorant, 
those who would teach fault, you can't just get anybody to do this kind of job. It's just not, it's, it's, it's a very serious job in, in the sight of God it is. And there's many people out there today who are supposedly, allegedly teaching and preaching the Word of God that shouldn't be doing it at all. And you've seen these guys on TV. I, I don't have to tell you. They've done everything but teach the Word of God. But they're in front of a pulpit or a people, and they're saying a lot of stuff that doesn't fly with what the Scripture's saying. So am I setting myself up as, as some judge? No, I'm not. God forbid. I'm just saying what, what the Scripture says here. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such we should incur a stricter judgment. Do you know that James reveals himself as a teacher also here? Isn't this interesting? He says in verse uh, verse 1, he says, we, we will incur a stricter judgment. James is saying, I'm a teacher also. And he says, I'm taking this warning myself. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the caution. I'm giving my own self that this is a serious business. I'm taking it seriously. He says, we are going to incur a stricter judgment. Now, how many people want to be teachers now? You're going to be more strictly judged by God. It gets, it gets to be more serious. And so you realize this is a serious business and it's got to be taken seriously by the people who do it. And there are people in this room who are teaching and preaching right now, including myself. There are people who want to do this in the future. There's, young, there's guys in here that are going to Bible college have been, want to do this kind of thing. And I'm telling you, and I, and I, I, I pray that you will do that, and I'm all behind you guys. But just take the warning seriously. This is a serious matter before God. It's never to be taken lightly ever. And he says here, we're going to incur a stricter judgment. The word judgment means the verdict pronounced by the judge on, on people. And so teachers are going to be accountable before God for their teaching. What they say about the scriptures is going to, is going to be held accountable uh, by God to these people. So I question myself often, should I be doing this? Should I be doing this? And I always say, no, I shouldn't be doing this. It's always my answer. And someone else says, yeah, you should. And I say, I don't know about that. Um, so we must ask ourselves when we teach before we teach or preach, is what I'm going to say about the scriptures accurate? Is it God-honoring? Is it edifying? Is it self-glorifying? Am, am I trying to glorify myself or God? You know, John MacArthur says that 85% of what a preacher says is accurate. 85% of what a guy who's trying to preach the word of God says is basically accurate. 15% is somewhat suspect. That's an interesting statement. It's probably true, too, because why? Why does he say that? Because every person who stands to preach the word of God or teach it is a human being and he's got faults and, and, and sins and all kinds of stuff. He's, his, his mind is not clear all the time on what things are, or what things are being said. Or maybe he's, been, um, maybe he's been infused with some kind of traditional theology he's brought to the text. And so that's probably true. Some things that a man says are probably not going to be right. That's why it's your job to check out what's being set up here. That doesn't mean you, you tell Pastor Mike, hey Mike, you're not a judge over the, everything he says, and you know you come up and critique his sermon every Sunday morning. You don't do that. And there's people that do that, by the way. It just means that you, 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 you know, you're checking out what it says in the Scripture yourself. And so, teachers can heavily influence people. And because of this, they're going to receive a stricter judgment. You know, how many people have been led astray in a church or a, an organization that called itself a church by guys who were false prophets, false teachers, that have been led astray completely into false doctrine, that have been led to places like Guyana, South America, to die, a thousand of them, that untold damage has been done by guys who have influenced people wrongly. And remember, increased influence means increased responsibility. And so if you're going to be a teacher of the Word, 
realize that it's a responsible thing and, and that it's a, it's a thing that's serious to be taken seriously. This is the Word of God we're preaching. The inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And that's how we see it here. We don't have this business of... We think, you know, that maybe there's things that are incorrect about the Word. We don't think that here. We think it's... Well, we believe it's the Word of God. So if you aspire to teach, understand the serious nature of the task. Something... And this has to do with the tongue. You're teaching. Um... Verse 2, the word for here connects the previous verse for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble, all teachers, James says, including myself. James is including himself here. We all stumble in many ways. Even James does. And those who teach are what? What are we but fallen sinners saved by the grace of God? No better than anybody else. So who do we think we are? We don't. Hopefully we won't think we're anybody except servants. And so we're going to stumble in many ways. The word stumble means to... A foot striking against some obstacle so as to cause a person to trip or stumble. A failure in duty, it's a sin, not a fatal fall, but a failure that hinders our progress. And he says, he says, uh, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And no one is perfect. Uh, if, if you could say words that were perfect all the time, never demeaning, never hurtful, never gossiping, never discouraging, always glorifying to God, you'd be perfect. And no one is. Because James says we all stumble in many ways. So no one has spoken perfectly always. We've always said something that we shouldn't have said. Things that we regret. And so if you desire to be a teacher of the Word, understand what's involved. It's a serious business. And so first of all, he said he gives a warning to teachers concerning their tongue. And then in verses 3 to 6, he talks about the disproportionate size of the tongue compared to its disastrous results. The disproportionate size of the tongue compared to its disastrous results. And he gives three illustrations to, to make his point. Uh, he talks about the bit in the horse, first of all. Secondly, he talks about the rudder in the ship. And thirdly, the spark in the forest. First of all, verse 3, the bit in the horse. He says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so, mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Um, you know the bit is the metal uh, mouthpiece on a bridle that is used to control the horse, and, he, and, he, and the aim here is to gain the entire the, the, the obedience of the horse. He says here we direct their entire body as well, so that's what he's trying to do. And so he's saying his, what he's saying here is this: something so very small like a bit can control something very big like a horse and turn his whole body around. And so he gives us this illustration. Secondly, in verse 4, he talks about the rudder and the ship. He says, look at the ships also. Although they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Uh, the word also here connects, uh, where he says, look at the ships also, connects this illustration to the first illustration to, to build on his evidence here. But the emphasis here is on the problems encountered by the ship. Kind of, what kind of problems do the ships at sea have? Well, first of all, they have... The ships are large. It says, even though they are so great. I mean, you have a huge ship, ship in the sea you're trying to govern. It's already a problem already, as it is. But then secondly, you have strong winds that come against it and beat against the ship, and it makes sailing difficult. And how often have we heard of this and seen this? Ships in the sea that are up against high winds and storms and waves, and they're going everywhere, and you've even wrecked at sea. Even, even uh, you think of the... Uh, uh, Titanic that crashed the sea with the uh, uh, glacier, and so many things can happen out there. And so 
he's saying he's contrasting a small rudder with a big ship. And something so small as a rudder controls something so big as a ship. So the second illustration. The third illustration is the spark in the forest in verse 5. He says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Um, in Palestine, they say in the dry season, that the brush that's there and the, and the way things are, that it can be, if so dry, it can be ignited with the slightest spark. And in the dry season, it's really bad. The brush fire can spread really quickly uh, throughout the land here and cause great problems. So something so small, small as a spark can cause total devastation of forest fire. And so he gives these three illustrations to say that, look, the tongue is a small member of the body, very small, but it can wreak havoc, cause great destruction, uh, not only here, but throughout the world. And so he gives a further description of the tongue in, ver in verse 6 here. He says, he says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The very world of iniquity the tongue is, meaning that the, this tongue is, the tongue is a system of lawlessness. The tongue is a system of lawlessness and rebellion. It's kind of like the wild, wild west, where there was no law at all, and people did what they want. You, you want to hang a guy? Hang this guy at the nearest tree and get a, guy, a couple of guys out there and hang him, and he's dead. There's no law out there. You want to rustle some cattle? Then do it. You want to steal some horses? Do it. You're a law unto yourself. And the tongue is that way. It's a law unto itself. It's it's lawless. Uh, it says here it, it defiles the entire body. Um, the destructive power of the tongue defiles the entire body. Kind of like uh, if you went in a fire or near a fire and you got smoke on you, it doesn't go away, that smell. And you carry it away from you and you smell like smoke. That's how the tongue affects us. All, it hurts and leaves it. It hurts all that it touches or, or affects. And so it says here, it sets on fire the course of our life. The contamination here continues to widen and get bigger as the, as the passage goes on. You know, you, you can have a rumor, start a rumor or a gossip, and or a false teaching, and it can harm you know, a church member, and then it can spread to another member, and then another one, and then an entire church can be uh, harmed by this. Uh, or disunited by, by uh, words that are said. You can spread disunity in a church. Um, or it can spread through a family, a family or a whole church or a neighborhood or a whole community or an entire nation or the whole world. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. In the 1800s, some men arose that decided that they didn't believe the, the Bible was the Word of God. And so they started to say, well, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are really not written by Moses. And we talked about this already. They were written by what they call redactors or editors, and they, uh, Moses didn't really write this, and they started doing this with every book in the Old Testament and the whole Bible. After a while, they had just dismantled the whole thing and said, well, none of it's really accurate or right or historically true. And so this, this was called higher criticism. Guess what? It's all over the world today. In the last 200 years, has been spread everywhere. And, any, and we talked about this. In any college you go to in America, state college, guess what they're going to be taught in the religion department? Higher criticism. Because it spread because men said, we don't believe the Bible's the word of God. And so the destructive power of the tongue. What about Hitler in Germany? What was he known for? His ability to speak and influence people with what he said. And he got you've seen you've seen uh, movies of him speaking and he fired up crowds and got everybody behind him and look what they did. 
caused great damage throughout the whole world, tremendous damage, uh, nightmare for people. And so the, the destructive power of the tongue, it says here in uh, verse 6 that it's, uh, it's set on fire by hell. That word hell in the, in the Greek is Gehenna, the lake of fire. It is inflamed by Gehenna. The tongue is inflamed by Gehenna itself. The origin of the tongue, uh, this is the origin of the tongue's destructive force, Gehenna or hell. The tongue is only the fuse, the source of the deadly fire is hell itself. Gehenna was, the, the origin of that term was from the Valley of Hinnom, back in the Old Testament where they burned uh, children to Molech, an idol. And then later on it became a, a trash a, a place outside of Jerusalem where they burned fire continuously. And then Jesus took that term and made it, or didn't make it, but he used that term to describe everlasting hell and how the fire burns forever. And so this is what our tongue is. It is its origin is Gehenna. Our tongues can become a weapon for Satan, to be used for destructive purposes. You see how you see how deadly the tongue can be. This is a description from the Word of God. It's not something I'm just telling you off the top of my head. This is what the Scriptures say. Very deadly. So the tongue is disproportionate to the havoc it wreaks. Although it's small, it wreaks tremendous destruction and havoc. Thirdly, the untamed nature of the tongue in verses seven and eight. The untamed nature of the tongue. Verse 7 says, For every species, it's actually nature is what the Greek word is, every nature of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed, has been tamed by the human race, actually human nature. Um, and so we see in verse 7 that animals can be tamed by humans. And you've seen this. I don't have to tell you. You've seen um, animals uh, like uh, uh, you know, lions. You've seen them, uh, lion tamers tame them. You've seen uh, parrots. Uh, you've seen uh, whales. Uh, you've seen, <laughs> I think the parrot is funny. You've seen <laughs> dolphins uh, being trained. Uh, animals have been tamed and trained by men. And uh, animals in the ark apparently didn't cause Moses a problem either, by the way. But, you, uh, did I say, what, who did I say? Moses. <laughs> See, this is where higher criticism started. <laughs> Whoever it was in the, in the, in the uh, bark with those animals <laughs> didn't cause a problem at all. But although animals can be tamed by humans, guess what? The contrast is humans can't tame, tame their own tongues. Can't control our own tongues, verse 8 says. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. <clears throat> what a sad contrast. Animals can be tamed, but we can't tame our It's an ongoing battle. It says no one <clears throat> can tame the tongue. No one of himself, that is, contains the tongue. It's an ongoing battle throughout life, right? Verse 8 says it's, verse eight says it's a restless evil. That word, restless evil, is translated unstable in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8, by the way. 1.8 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, right? Same word, unstable, for uh, restless evil here in, this, in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. The, the phrase restless evil suggests the idea of an animal who's in his cage in captivity, and he's restless. He's just walking back and forth, wanting to get out, wanting to break loose and get to get his freedom. And that's like the tongue. It wants to break forth and cause problems. Understand this about your tongue. The tongue is not a... The tongue wants to break forth and cause problems for other people. And say, and I don't have to tell you this, I don't think. We all know this. We always have to watch our tongue. It wants to say things that are hurtful or unhelpful to people or critical or gossiping or lying. And it goes on and on and on. Cursing. And so it is restless, it's full of restless evil here, or it is a restless evil, rather. And verse 8 says it's full of deadly poison. 
just like a snake's venom, but worse because it can affect so many lives, far more powerful than even a snake could affect you, if it were to kill you even. The tongue can destroy in so many ways. Well, it looks like a bad situation, doesn't it, so far? It is a bad situation. That's what the scripture is painting, a bad situation here, a bad picture of the tongue. Because it's nothing, it's bad, okay? That's why he's saying this. So is it possible for the tongue to be tamed? Is that even possible? Yes, but with God's only with God's ongoing help. And this is a daily battle we face. It doesn't ever end until uh, we're in the grave. No one by himself can do it, only with God's help. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 16, we'll read through verse 26. Where it talks about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy. These are the kind of things that words, words cause. Outbursts of anger, people yelling and saying things in an angry fashion. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, once again with our words. And so, yes, can it be tamed? Only with the help of God and no other way. And like I say, it is a daily battle, like everything else in our life. Lastly, look in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 12, at the hypocrisy of the tongue. The hypocrisy of the tongue. He says in verse 9, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, with the tongue, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. At one moment, we're, you know, we, we look real good in church. We come to church and we think, oh, so-and-so is a really good Christian because he seems to appear that way. And then we can go home and turn into a, an, an animal with people and say things that are hurtful and unkind and, and mean, Right? And any of us in here are guilty of this. And that's how we're. That's what we're like. We can go to church and bless God, right? Praise the Lord, you know, sing the hymns of praise, preach the word. Then go out in traffic right after church and curse somebody for cutting us off. Well, that's how we are. That's how it is. That's how the tongue is. And so you can see the need to, to have it under control. And these people that we're cursing, they're, they've been made in the likeness of God, it says. These people that we hate, or say mean things about, they've been made in the likeness of God. And so, to, to curse men is to insult God, really. And he says in verse 10, From the same mouth, the same mouth, come both blessing and cursing, emphasizing the utter hypocrisy of our tongue. 
illustration. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, when Christ said, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Some, they said, Some say Jeremiah, or uh, some say you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. And Christ says, But who do you say I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for it hadn't been, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And what happened just after that? The Lord says, I'm going to go to the I'm going to go die. And Peter says, wait a minute, Lord, you're not going to die. And he began to rebuke him, it says. The same person that confessed that Christ was the Lord turns around, Peter, and rebukes the Lord of all people. How are you going to rebuke the Lord? He did it. And the very next chapter, the Lord, he, he uh, the very next chapter, he denies Christ. Or later on, he denies Christ. And then late, and earlier, right after this chapter, he, he, uh, the Lord turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's how we are. One moment we're blessing God, the next minute we're cursing people. And it shouldn't be this way. It says in verse 10, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Very plain, blunt statement like James always does. It shouldn't be this way. And it's a strong negative use here. It should not be this way. Definitely should not be this way. He makes it, he emphasizes it. And so we should not tolerate hypocritical speech, right? Verses 11 and 12, he gives three more illustrations from nature. In verse 11, he says, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Is that, is that how it is? From a fountain comes both fresh and bitter water? Or one or the other, right? Not both. And so in the same way, we shouldn't be blessing God with the same mouth and cursing men. Second illustration, verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Is that possible? It's ridiculous. It's illogical. And yet our tongues do that, which is illogical and ridiculous. Thirdly, he says, uh, or a vine produces figs, and he says, nor can salt water produce fresh. And so all these illustrations from nature to say, look, these things ought not to be this way. We should have a, a, t a tongue that's unhypocritical. We, we, think, we say things that bless God and praise God. We should say words that encourage and edify each other. We should not say things that are hurtful to people and discouraging and demoralizing and hurtful to our own children and to uh, people in our church or people on the job. We should be testimonies on the job and witnesses for Christ and so on. You know this. And not any other way. So what are we going to do about all this? Well, I think first of all we need to realize the severity of the problem. This is a severe problem painted by James in James chapter 3. He paints this as a very severe problem, not something to take lightly ever. Why is he emphasizing the severity of this over and over again? Because he's saying, we've got a real problem on our hands here. A tongue out of control can destroy a church, an organization, a nation, a country, a world. And so we have to realize this is a severe problem. Everyone's affected by this. None are exempt. All of us. And the more that, we, and the sooner we realize that, the better off we're, we're going to be all working on this problem. Realize it can devastate people and hurt them greatly. Realize your words can devastate people. So we've got to be careful on what we say. It can devastate your own wife or husband. It can devastate your own children or parents. It can devastate your coworkers, and so on. Realize that uh, this, this kind of speaking, uh, uh, ill speaking can dishonor God also. And men who have been made in the likeness of God. Realize it's hypocritical. So what do we do? Well, in closing, turn to Psalm chapter 19. I know, Ryan, we're not supposed to say in closing, but we're going to close this. Psalm 19, verse 14. 
This is an absolutely tremendous verse, <clears throat> and one that if we all took heed to it, really is revolutionary, quite honestly, in many ways. This is a prayer that all of us should learn to pray every day. And if we did, we would uh, avoid uh, all kinds of problems. And here's the prayer um, at the end of this psalm. The prayer is this in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He prays about two things. The words that he says and the thoughts that he thinks. Let the words of my heart and the meditations of I'm sorry, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Two things. Lord, my words and my and my thoughts may they be acceptable to you. Notice he didn't say, help me not to say the wrong thing today. And there's nothing wrong with that. Help me not to say things that are out of sort or discourage people or hurt people. He doesn't say any of those things. He says this. This captures the whole thing. The words that I say and the thoughts that I think, can they? I pray that they'll be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. If we, if we pray that way and think that way, then whatever we say or whatever we think, we're, we're going to ask ourselves, is this pleasing in God's sight? Is this acceptable in His sight? It's going to be different from we can't, we shouldn't say this, and we shouldn't curse, and we shouldn't do that. It's going to be different now. Different spins have been put on this. It's going to be that which is pleasing to God always, right? This is a great prayer for all of us to pray every day. It would, really, it would revolutionize us. And when you talk to someone and you look back and reflect on it, you say to yourself, did what I just say to that guy? Um, was it pleasing to God? Or did I just tear him down and rip him to shreds or hurt somebody else? And so, let's pray this every day and let's seek, and let's seek to, with God's help, this ongoing battle to put our tongues under control so we might glorify God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this passage and for what it teaches us and how it hits us real hard. And we need to, we need to hear it uh, from your word. And we just pray today that uh, tonight, rather, that we will take this seriously. Um, realize the effect of our words that they have upon others and that, we'll, uh, that we will do this, that, we, that the words of our mouth will be acceptable to you each and every day. We just pray this in Christ's name. We're going to have a song. Again? Or no? I don't see myself leading it, probably. <laughs> Daniel, you want to leave this in the uh, Let's stand. Trust and obey. I